Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On our weekly roundtable today, our panelists, they will choose either a national or international story that they would like to focus on. And then for the rest of the show, we focus on Black history, on people or events that are inspired our panelists or that they want to share their thoughts on these events with you. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The Republican-controlled House voted to oust Democrat Ilhan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday. The vote was 218 to 211 along party lines. Christopher Martinez reports. The Republicans say they acted because of allegedly anti-Semitic remarks Omar has made, especially back in 2019, including criticism of the pro-Israel lobbying group APAC. Democrat Hakeem Jeffries of New York is the House Minority Leader. He spoke to reporters shortly before the vote, saying Democrats were quick to condemn anti-Semitism and that Omar had apologized years ago for using offensive tropes. It's not about accountability. It's about political revenge. Democrats say the Republican move is political payback for Democrats removing Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Paul Gosar of Arizona from committees. That came after Green's social media posts promoting the assassination of then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats, and Gosar's anime video portraying the beheading of Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic- a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have t- who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Democratic leader Jeffries says he'll appoint Omar to the budget committee. Omar does not think this is the end, as she said before the final vote. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger. I'm Christopher Martinez. Top European Union officials are due to meet in Kiev with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky today as it strives to join the EU and NATO. Speaking yesterday, von der Leyen pledged more sanctions on Russia in time for the one-year anniversary of its war in Ukraine later this month. Today, Russia is paying a heavy price as our sanctions are eroding its economy, throwing it back by a generation. The price cap on crude oil already costs Russia around 160 million euros a day. And we will keep on turning up the pressure further. We will introduce with our G7 partners an additional price cap on Russian petroleum products. And by the 24th of February, exactly one year since the invasion started, 
We aim to have the tenth package of sanctions in place. EU leaders are expected to reject Ukraine's hopes of fast-tracking EU membership, though. This comes amidst reports of fraud and mishandling of aid sent to Ukraine. Meanwhile, marking the anniversary of Russia's victory in Stalingrad during World War II, President Vladimir Putin vowed victory in its war in Ukraine. Those who are dragging European countries, including Germany, into a new war with Russia and irresponsibly talking about it as a done deal. Those who expect to win against Russia on the battlefield. They apparently don't understand that a modern war with Russia will be completely different. We are not sending our tanks to their borders, but we have what it takes to respond. And using military hardware will not be the end of it. Everyone has to understand this. The prime ministers of three Baltic countries are threatening to boycott the Olympics if Russia is allowed to compete in next year's Paris Games because of the war in Ukraine. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania all border Russia and have supported Ukraine. NATO is calling on Russia to respect the only treaty it has with the U.S. to keep a lid on nuclear weapons expansion. Russia suspended cooperation under the pact called START Treaty last August over U.S. support for Ukraine. Pope Francis has landed in South Sudan, opening the second and final leg of his African pilgrimage, with plans to encourage the young country's stalled peace process. Before leaving the Congo, people rallied urging the Pope meet with victims of sex abuse in the Catholic Church. The Pope has met with victims in the past, but there were no plans to do so during his visit to the Congo. In the U.S., women Democrats in the House are proposing a new bill ensuring women's right to reproductive freedom. It would ban prosecution of those who travel across state lines to obtain an abortion. Edwin J. Vieira reports. The bill would establish a private right of action for women to travel across state lines to obtain an abortion. It would also affirm the attorney general's enforcement authority to bring civil lawsuits in a case where a person is prevented from or retaliated against for traveling. Although no state has enacted a law banning travel, Missouri has a pending bill that enforces abortion restrictions through civil lawsuits. Washington Representative Marilyn Strickland noted safe reproductive health care comes with the ability to go elsewhere if you need it. We want to make sure that the ability to get access to safe and legal abortion is available for all people, regardless of your background. And the ability to travel is definitely part of that. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. And America's employers added a stunning 517,000 jobs in January, a strong gain in the face of the Federal Reserve's aggressive drive to slow growth and tame inflation with higher interest rates. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, and we have a special show for you today. We have asked our panelists to select either a national or international story of their choice that they would like to uh, discuss. And we also are going to be focusing on Black history, where, again, they will be choosing either two people or two events from Black history that has either inspired them or that they want to share their thoughts on. Uh, This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And what I would like to do now is actually welcome our panelists. I'd like to welcome 
Laura Carlson, Director of the Americas Program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City and is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, mm-hmm. Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, governing board member of the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. And before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Yes. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so to set the stage, this first round, you all, I'm sure you've selected the topics, either a national or international story you would like to discuss. But just to set the stage, um, uh, I will play a couple of clips. Uh, One will be Ilhan Omar. You know, she was removed uh, from the Foreign um, Services Committee uh, by the GOP majority in the House. And that's going to be followed by a clip from CNN on the NAACP uh, uh, threatening to sue Florida, given DeSantis' stand on blocking Black and other um, history, LGBTQ, and others in schools. So let's go to those clips right now. Representation matters. Continuing to expand our ideas of who is American and who can partake in the American experience, experiment, is a good thing. I am an American. An American who was sent here. An American who was sent here by her constituents to represent them in Congress. A refugee who survived the horrors of a civil war. Someone who spent her childhood in a refugee camp. Someone who knows what it means to have a shot at a better life here in the United States. And someone who believes in the American dream and the American possibility and the promise and the ability to participate in the democratic process. That is what this debate is about. There is an idea out there that I am not, that I do not have objective decision-making because of who I am, where I come from, and my perspective. But I reject that. We say there is nothing objective about policy-making. We all inject our perspective, our point of views, our lived experiences, and the voices of our constituents. That's what democracy is about. So what is the work of the Foreign Affairs Committee? It is not to co-sign the stated 
foreign policy of whatever administration is in power. It's about oversight. It's to critique and to advocate for a better path forward. But most importantly, it is to make the myth that American foreign policy is intrinsically moral a reality. So I will continue to speak up because representation matters. I will continue to speak up for little kids who wonder who's speaking up for them. I will continue to speak up for families around the world who are seeking justice. Whether they are displaced in refugee camps or they are hiding under their beds somewhere like I was, waiting for the bullets to stop. Because this child survivor of war would have wanted that. The nine-year-old me would be disappointed if I didn't talk about the victims of conflict. Those that are experiencing unjust wars, atrocities, ethnic cleansing, occupation, or displacement like I did. They are looking to the international community and the United States, asking for help. They look to us because the international community and the United States profess the values of protecting human rights and upholding international law. So we owe it to them not to make this a myth, but a reality. I didn't come to Congress to be silent. I came to Congress to be their voice. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. So take your vote or not, I am here to stay and I am here to be a voice against harms around the world and advocate for a better world. I yield back. In their quarterly meeting of the Florida State Conference held in Orlando, NAACP chapters from all across the state were joined by elected officials to open with a main message. Our uh, intent is to litigate vigorously on the grounds of equal protection. The group held a press conference Saturday morning to share its disapproval of the state's decision to block the teaching of an AP African American Studies course in public high schools. My own culture of history, which is a part of American history, is being removed. Earlier this week, National Civil Rights Attorney Ben Crump threatened the state with a lawsuit. The NAACP says it may file one of its own. So many people of color have died for us to have the rights that we have today. So we won't shut up, we won't quit, we won't go away. Dr. LaVon Bracey shared her story of struggles and sacrifice when she integrated the public school system in Alachua County in 1965. I was spit on every day, I was beaten. At that time, the NAACP filed a lawsuit against the county school board and won. Bracey says her experience is a piece of America's history. If my story makes people uncomfortable, that's the history that actually happened. I cannot whitewash it. I cannot make it sound good because what happened to me 
was not good. The Department of Education found concerns in six areas of the pilot AP African American Studies course. It included Black Queer Studies, the Movement for Black Lives, and the Black Struggle in the 21st Century. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis stood by the DOE's rejection. We have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. The College Board says it will release the framework of the course on Wednesday, February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. All righty, there you go. I think we are ready now. Laura, we are going to start with you. I mean, those two clips were clips clearly that I selected, wanted to uh, share those stories with uh, our audience. Um, and we know the, the danger, I mean, it is Black History Month. And here you have this whole movement attacking history, but Black history in particular. But having said all of that, Laura, is there a national or international story that you would like to share with us now and discuss with us now? Yes, thanks, Margaret. I actually want to follow up on Ilkhan Omar's uh, declarations about the importance of the Foreign Affairs Committee and fighting myths about U.S. foreign policy and also standing up for victims of conflict. Too often we see a rift between domestic and foreign policy that shouldn't exist. So I'm going to go to Peru. We've talked about Peru here and what's going on, and the U.S. press is covering it sporadically. But it's a daily occurrence with implications around the region and for democratic movements throughout the world. Indigenous peoples, especially from southern Peru, but also from the northern Andean highlands, have traveled to Lima now and are taking part in demonstrations that literally put their lives on the line every day. The president, Dina Boluarte, has unleashed the armed forces and police on the protesters uh, they call them terrorists, and the Peruvian elite has exposed its racism, classes, classism, probably like never before in recent history in response to the sudden appearance of the brown majority in the center of this very centralized power in Lima and Peru. So far, some 60 people have been killed by security forces, making it the most bloody confrontation in Latin America in years, and it's still going on almost at one a day. So this isn't just another political crisis in Peru, which has seen six presidents in five years, most of them not even elected to the post, since the Congress has the power to remove presidents with this nebulous concept of permanent moral incapacity. What it is, is a showdown in the global struggle against inequality and a system that discriminates and attacks indigenous, black, and other populations, including women who are participating in huge numbers in these demonstrations throughout the country. I have it on my mind because just a few days ago, I had the opportunity to talk to a group of indigenous communitarian feminists from Cajamarca and the Andean Highlands, and they described a much deeper reading of what's taking place there than you normally see in the press. They described the taking of Lima not as a military endeavor or a revolution, but as a revolution in consciousness to build a new kind of democracy that represents the people who have never been represented in the current democratic institutions. Their basic demands are well known, the resignation of Dina Boluarte, who was the vice president under the rural teachers leader, Pedro Castillo, who shocked the elite with his election in, 21, in 2021, but who took power and then was removed from office by the opposition Congress. 
And Dina Boluarte immediately allied with the corrupt right-wing traditional leaders led by the daughter of the imprisoned corrupt ex-president Alberto Fujimori. So Lourdes Contreras, one of these leaders I was talking to, calls this a moment to re be reborn. And she said, we're taking over this racist, classist, colonialist Lima, where the value of life isn't the same for indigenous and white people, where they can kill us and it doesn't matter. She said, if I go into the street in my traditional hat and clothing, I can be arrested for no reason or even attacked. So when we look at what's happening in these protests and we look at hap what's happening on a daily basis in Peru, we see echoes of Black Lives Matter. They're saying indigenous lives matter. We can't go on living like this and being attacked like this. We see echoes of movements against colonialism and for democracy everywhere. So the strategy they're laying out combines a transformation of established institutions and beyond that, a fundament, fundamental rethinking of the political system. They want a transitional government that can oversee an immediate constitutional assembly because to be able to advance even with local autonomous projects, they need a more just legal framework. And they've learned the lessons of Chile that they can't have at a constitutional assembly without being very careful about how they do it, because the backlash there, of course, led to, after months in, of work, a rejection of the new constitution. They recognize that the current set, system is set up to defeat them, so they feel that they have to make these changes before they can go to an election. They're talking about being against the violence against them, against the violence against the earth, against extractivism. And one of the main purposes of being in Lima is to generate debate and also to consolidate alliances they've been working on for years with other sectors and to wake up a part of Lima that's more sensitive more uh, to the uh, kinds of demands they're making and the kinds of denouncements they're making. This has been happening, although there is this tremendous tremendous repression and backlash. They have a very feminist analysis of the connections between control over women's bodies and women's participation is very high as they make both general and specific demands within the movement. So they're using the power they have, which among other things is the power that without them, the people from the countryside that have been abandoned and ignored for so many years what they say is that Lima would die of hunger. The system is obsolete and they want to reconstruct the nation from the provinces, from below, and not from this racist center of power. So it's very exciting uprising, <clears throat> excuse me, for the radical and feminist nature of the demands, but they're very vulnerable. And as they're asking everyone to pay attention and to support them because building popular power at this critical moment is costing lives. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that and selecting uh, that story. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, what story did you select, either national or international, that you would like to discuss today? Well, I, I started out thinking I was going to do Black History Month because of the stuff in Florida and the fact that they are taking, uh, actually uh, removing some of the, quote, objectionable people, including uh, Tahasee Coates' works uh, from uh, uh, their curriculum. But really, I wanted to talk about what's going on in Israel. 
Um, and Ben Gavir's part of his uh, changing the uh, tone of things in Israel to the extent that uh, making violence uh, more likely, making uh, last year was the uh, largest uh, number of Palestinians killed in recent history. Um, but Ben Gavir, for those of you who don't know, is part of Israel's religious Zionist ideological movement. They engaged in an attempt to reconcile religious Jews and Zionism, and that's a problem for these religious Zionist writers because the, uh, they are suspicious of Zionism's secular influences. He's also a part of a growing movement in Israel that's challenged restrictions on prayer at Al-Aqsa, and that's really what's been leading to the current conflict. Because basically, uh, Al-Aqsa is one of the very few people places in the in the uh, West Bank where there is, in fact, uh, some control over an institution by Palestinians. Um, it's 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 important because that particular place uh, is sensitive because um, the attempts have been changed by ultranationalist Jews that they've been entering the compound storming the site by Israeli security forces, including inside the prayer hall of Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Al-Aqsa Mosque is like so sensitive for Palestinians. They remember, for example, uh, the slow encroachment of Jewish groups uh, in Ibrahimi Mosque, which is the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. Half the mosque was turned into a synagogue after the 1967 war. Uh, and it has been gradually increasing in size. Palestinians believe that the far-right Israeli movements that seek to demolish the Islamic structures in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, and that they want to build a Jewish temple. But really, they're very much more vicious than just what's been happening in these last few days. There are calls now by this far-right, the farthest-right Israeli government in history, to remove Palestinians from the West Bank altogether. They've been including more and more settlements. There are now, I think, several hundred thousand Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And, and the question comes up that what is really happening is a notion of Jewish supremacy in Israel. And, and you know what? You hear Biden attacking white supremacy in the United States, but you do not hear our president attacking Jewish supremacy. And what is Jewish supremacy? It's the notion that only Jews will have rights in Israel. That means it begs the question, well, what are the people, Palestinians in the West Bank? Are they citizens? No. Are they occupied territories? Israel says, no, it's not an occupied territory. After all, they live there. What are they? They have no rights. They can't vote. They pay taxes. Their movement is restricted. This is all, a, and, and, and think about all of this. It's really an annihilation a genocidal removal of uh, Palestinians from Israel, which is contemplated for the very first time. And you have to ask about American foreign policy. Here we are sending billions of dollars of weapons to protect uh, Russia, pr protect Ukraine from Russia's attempt to literally genocidal changes to their country, removing them as Ukrainians. And here we have uh, Israelis in this far, far right government talking about removal of Palestinians and continued. There's, you know, what used to be when there was the Oslo uh, decisions was there was a path 
that Palestinians thought, okay, things are dreadful now. They couldn't be worse, but we see a path to a country of our own to having citizenship somewhere. We're certainly not getting it in Israel. And now we see with this far right movement, the notion that we just don't talk about that anymore. And as you look at people who have no path to a change from an impossible situation, both in Gaza and the West Bank, well, now you can't expect anything but more violence. Right. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, very thorough analysis there. Um, both of you, Laura and Peru and, and Jackie on Israel-Palestine. Uh, for our listeners, we're doing something a little different today with our roundtable. Our panelists are selecting for this round topics, either a national story or international story that they would like to discuss. So now we go on to Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, nuclear war may be the most pressing issue since nothing can go forward if that takes place. And I'm sure many in our audience are following what's happening with regard to the United States and China, with Secretary of State Blinken supposedly headed there, with the story capturing headlines about Chinese balloons allegedly over Montana spying on the United States, a four-star U.S. military man saying that there would be a war between United States and China by 2025. The fact that this week uh, U.S. military bases were renewed in the Philippines. We recall that those bases had their origins in the U.S. war against that archipelago at the beginning of the 20th century. And then those bases were aimed at Japan. And we know how that went during the 1940s. Having said that, however, perhaps the most pressing issue in terms of war is the Ukraine. And I would like to remind listeners what I said last week about the French intellectual Emmanuel Todd in Le Figaro suggesting that this war could be existential for all parties involved, and not only Russia and Ukraine, but also the United States and NATO insofar as it could lead to World War III. Now, what's interesting is that that reminder also dovetails with some cautionary notes entered into the discourse in the North Atlantic nations. The International Monetary Fund has suggested that this year Russian economic growth, despite sanctions, will outstrip British economic growth. The RAND Corporation, which you know has a headquarters in Santa Monica where it trains budding war criminals, has issued a similar cautionary a paper about the cost of this war in Ukraine. Uh, as has the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, another think tank on the Atlantic seaboard, uh, which was echoed by Republican Congressman uh, Mike Rogers of Michigan. And I think it's important as well not to have tunnel vision when we examine this conflict. We know that uh, just this past week, the Russian foreign minister was in South Africa. Speaking of Sergei Lavrov, there will be military maneuvers involving South Africa, Russia, and China in a few days, perhaps marking the first anniversary of the so-called special military operation. Obviously, this is upsetting Washington. I hope this has nothing to do with the fact that a number of parties who have deep roots in apartheid South Africa are now prominent in the United States. I'm speaking of the spouse of the recently appointed White House Chief of Staff, uh, Mr. Zeitz, the former COVID uh, coordinator, not to mention the partner of Hunter Biden, the notorious son. But 
I think as well, it's important to point out that this uh, upset with South Africa has caused uh, many in that region to turn ever more towards uh, Russia and its partners. I'm speaking of the visit this week to much-sanctioned Zimbabwe of Belarus's president, Lukashenko, who is probably uh, Moscow's closest ally uh, in Europe. And likewise, with regard to steering clear of tunnel vision, uh, we should pay close attention to how India is benefiting from this war. It's basically getting oil on the discount from Russia and then selling it at a markup to the United States and to Europe. At the same time, uh, India is in the process of constructing this north-south transportation corridor, which will see goods shipped from Russia through Iran into India. And just as China was probably the major winner of the Cold War against Moscow, concluding roughly in 1991, uh, India may be the major winner of this newest Cold War between uh, Russia and the North Atlantic countries. And this is taking place uh, even though uh, U.S. State Department official Victoria Nuland was just in New Delhi offering many gifts and baubles to the New Delhi authorities, which they will uh, gladly accept, but apparently not turn away from Moscow. This puts a bright spotlight on some of the Black political leadership who are on board with regard to sanctions against the U uh, against Russia and the Ukraine, but have no answer with regard to what to do about police killings, what to do about police terror, no idea of appealing to the international community, which would perforce mean uh, moving away from this antagonism uh, towards Moscow, perhaps embracing a socialist Cuba, which is now under a blockade with U.S. Uh, complicity and participation. And this also ties into the debt ceiling dispute, because if that dispute is not settled in a friendly and agreeable manner, uh, it possibly could uh, involve the United States not paying bondholders, worsening relations with China, bringing the United States and China ever closer to conflict. Right. Thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And by the way, there is breaking news that um, Anthony Blinken was scheduled to visit China, and that trip has now been postponed, called off, I suppose, because of the news about this uh, suspected Chinese spy balloon over the U.S. And we all know the major powers all spy on each other. We are going to take a station break. And when we return for the rest of the hour, we'll be focusing on Black history. Um, our panelists, uh, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn, will be with us. You won't want to miss any of that. We'll be right back. All we want to do is break the chains up, man. All we want to do is be free. 
you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. You can check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Alabama. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. It is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We are now going to turn our attention to Black history, and our panelists have each selected a Black history personality, known or unknown, or event that they would like to discuss with you. And to just set the stage for that, let us go to a montage from Black History prepared by the Pacifica Radio Archives. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. I am. I am. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land. We are not begging for our own freedom. It is up to us to take it. You know, when you go to jail for a righteous cause, you can accept the inconveniences of jail with a kind of inner sense of calm and an inner sense of peace. Lost and surrounded by enemies who won't let you speak in your own language, who destroy your statues and instruments, who ban your um-boom-ba-boom. We should measure the prosperity of a nation not by the number of millionaires, but by the absence of poverty, the prevalence of health, the efficiency of the public schools and the number of people who can do read worthwhile books. Because when I lay there and thought that if America had to go to war in the morning, I would be willing to go. And when I can go to any of the four corners of the world, take a chance on losing my life, being away from my loved ones, to guarantee a foreigner a better way of life, I must be able to go and guarantee the Negro a better way of life. Alrighty, and that was a montage prepared by the Pacifica Radio Archives. And Laura Carlson, let us go to you and to see what you have selected uh, from Black History to discuss. Well, first, Margaret, I want to say it's it's really great that we have this opportunity to select a person or an event during Black History Month because so often. The focus is on the formal speeches or bios, and we forget how their lives and thinking continues to feed chains of activism and collective thought. I also want to mention to listeners that I visited them in the archives of KPFK 
on these issues in particular are extraordinary. They have a treasure trove of historical information, primary material for any researcher, anyone who's just interested in this. I chose Angela Davis, and I don't really need to go for Angela Davis's long biography because it's so well known in every facet of her ceaseless activism for social change and justice. That's one of the most important things about her, how consistent she's been putting her freedom and her own body on the line for her beliefs and always being a pioneer in thinking about where we're going, where we want to go, the world we want to have. My own formation as an anti-capitalist um, feminist has been dependent on her every step of the way. What I want to focus on is what she's doing now, her abolition work, her books, her book called Our Prisons Obsolete. And I've been thinking about it a lot because we did a, ta uh, a session, an interview on El Salvador. In El Salvador, they just opened what they call the Center for Confinement of Terrorism. The name's like a dystopia for a prison society of the future. This prison will house, according to the president, Nayib Bukele, some 40,000 prisoners. The United wow. Nations says that no prison should house more than 500 maximum because you can't have individual attention or proper care with any number out there. And they're talking 40,000 people. Instead of a confinement center for confinement of terrorism, it's actually a center for confinement of youth. And this has been the consistent strategy there based on dehumanizing um, people who are accused of being gang members. And even that accusation is in most cases or in many cases not at all proven. So during this panel discussion, we talked about the violations of human rights, but also the actual concept of using prisons to address issues of structural violence, uh, the relationship to the peace accords and to peace in general. And in the United States, we're seeing the same fundamental divergent between basic values and the analysis of how to, how to understand security. So in this, Angela Davis's work has been absolutely critical. Her feminist analysis is at the center here, but she notes that this isn't just any feminist, feminist analysis. She said in a recent interview with Harper's, there are those who put undue emphasis on the process of destroying or abolishing or dismantling. And we point out that abolition is about rebuilding re-envisioning, re-imagining, reconceptualizing. So what we're arguing is that the feminism we think is most effective is anti-racist feminism, anti-capitalist feminist feminism, and those are rendered much more powerful, much stronger by embracing abolition, and abolitionist movements are much more effective when they embrace anti-racism, anti-capitalism, feminism. So what she's doing, again, is reminding us of the structural violence that's at the root of criminality and of this whole punitive system that's developed and how to go beyond the dead end of this individualist and punitive concept, the need for new forms of transformative justice, which incidentally is really close to what we found working with Mayan communities and other indigenous communities here in Mesoamerica. So it's, it's not a single issue, abolition of prisons. It's really a very profound revisioning of society and of humanity itself. So I want to thank Angela Davis for always pushing us a step further in conceiving of and working for a just society for all.
Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And Jackie Goldberg, um, your figure or event from Black history that you would like to discuss. I chose one of my personal heroes, and that is Reverend James Lawson. Most people don't know too much about James Lawson unless they're from Southern California or from the early movement of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or the notion of the national student movement. He was uh, expelled uh, uh, from Vanderbilt University for his civil rights activism in 1960. He uh, was a man who was very critical uh, to the notion of a nonviolent civil rights movement. He was in Nashville, Tennessee, in the Divinity School at Vanderbilt, and there really began conducting the nonviolent training workshops for what was to become the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And that was like in 1958. There and at Fisk University and other area schools, he began working with people that we all know, like Diane Nash or James Bevel, Bernard Lafayette, Marion Barry, and of course, John Lewis. In 1959 and 60, they and other Lawson-trained activists launched the Nashville sit-ins to challenge segregation in downtown stores. And as a young girl myself, I watched on television as people tried to get Coca-Cola at a at a Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina, and seeing people get in, arrested, arrested for trying to get a Coca-Cola at a lunch counter. I was young, but I remember it like it was yesterday. So he was kicked out of Vanderbilt because he participated in these things. And he began also freedom rights. He was very instrumental with Bayard Rustin on the planning of the March on Washington, Freedom Summer, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, all of them, all of them, Selma Voting Rights Movement, the Chicago Freedom Movement, Anti-Vietnam War Movement, all of them were led in part or helped in part or trained for their work in part by James Lawson. Um, he later on moved to Los Angeles, which is where I got to know him. And he still, he was the pastor of an important institution in our city, the Holman United Methodist Church which created a great deal of uh, activism in the civil rights movement in Southern California. He became a part of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and began to work on reproductive rights and gay rights. He has served as the chairman of a good organization here in Los Angeles, CLUE, which is Congress of Laity United for Economic Justice. He has hosted what's called Lost and Live, which is a weekly, weekly call-in radio where we get to discuss with him human and social rights issues. I, I could go on and on about him, but you cannot overestimate his importance uh, to the uh, civil rights movement of the United States. And he is a man who to this day is working with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. He works with Kent Wong and others over at uh, 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 Ana Luz Gonzalez at UCLA, which now is publishing a nonviolent social movement uh, book that focuses on the principles of nonviolence and social change. And is so revered here that our UCLA Labor Center near MacArthur Park has now been renamed the UCLA James Lawson Labor Center. He is still alive. He is still active at 94 years old. And he is a man who has changed the direction of civil rights in terms of activism and putting your life on the line, going to jail for what needed to be gone to jail for. And I've admired him forever. 
Right. Thank you for lifting up Reverend James Lawson and Jackie Goldberg. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, the person you would like to focus on or event from Black history. Dr. Horn. First of all, a little context. Uh, We should understand that it's not accidental that Governor DeSantis, who plans to run for president in 2024, is making the circumscribing of the teaching of Black history a major platform. He's falling following in the footsteps of Governor Youngkin of Virginia, who got elected in no small measure because he campaigned against the late novelist, Toni Morrison, and the fact that supposedly her works were inducing trauma into little Jennifer and little Johnny. Now, what's striking is that this is taking place in the midst of a reconceptualization of Black history. You see that in the 1619 project of Nicole Hannah-Jones, which now has received a television debut uh, on Hulu, uh, uh, produced by uh, Oprah Winfrey. And it's continuing the controversy by stressing the role of slavery in the founding of the United States, which in turn sheds light on why black people today continue to be treated like 21st century slaves And what's remarkable about about that is that that has induced opposition uh, in a kind of white united front involving the left, right, and center in opposition to these new interpretations. Uh, Having said this, let me engage in a bit of cross-promotion on Pacifica. Uh, Margaret, you know that I uh, host this uh, program along with others on Freedom Now, Saturdays, 11 a.m. Pacifica, 11 a.m. Pacific on Pacifica, kpfk.org. And tomorrow we're interviewing a scholar who is talking about the 1811 revolt of the enslaved in Southern Louisiana, which I know you featured on Sojourner Truth. He has new evidence with regard to, to that and also how that sheds light upon the role of slavery and the founding of the United States. And let me say that just like the Pacifica archives, Pacifica programs like Freedom Now are providing new interpretations and new revelations about Black history. And I dare say that uh, Freedom Now, in some ways, is a counterpoint to the antics of Governor DeSantis, Governor Youngkin, and represents, if you tune in, a kind of undergraduate seminar, even graduate seminar in Black studies that you don't want to miss. Right. Thank you for that, Dr. Horn. And we appreciate you mentioning the work you do on Freedom Now. Can you, we're a bit short of time, so I don't know that we'll be able to do a full second round. But Dr. Horn, is there a particular person or event that you wanted to discuss? I mean, you won't be able to do it, you know, with a fully with the time that we have, but just curious to know what you would select, Dr. Horn. Well, I would point to Vicente Guerrero, a a president of Mexico in the late 1820s, a man of African descent who led the abolition of enslavement of Africans in Mexico, which in turn led to a revolt in the then Mexican province that was Tejas or Texas that led to that state seceding, becoming an independent nation, and then becoming a leader in the commoditization of African bodies before crawling into the United States in 1845, where it's been ever since, although there's a lot of loose talk right now in Texas about seceding again. And I would also point to a a woman 
who I wrote a biography of. I'm speaking of Shirley Graham Du Bois, probably best known to your audience as a spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois, but actually a leading intellectual light in her own right, leading novelist, playwright, biographer, director of television in the independent West African state of Ghana, an exile in Cairo, Egypt in the 1960s and early 1970s before passing away in China in the mid-1970s and being buried next to Dr. Du Bois in Ghana thereafter. Okay, thank you, Dr. Horn. And uh, Laura Carlson and, and Jackie Goldberg, we literally have about, we could stretch it to three minutes left in the hour. So if you could take just um, a little over a minute to talk about the second event or person you would like to discuss. I'm sorry for the shortness of time there, Laura. Let's start with you. I wanted to talk very briefly about Audre Lorde, who was with us on this plane from 1934 to 1992, described herself as Black, lesbian, mother, warrior, poet. So she lived and worked with this concept of intersectionality, the intersection of overlapping identities, way before it became defined by academics. And one of the many brilliant lessons she gave us is it's not our differences that divide us, it's our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. In jazz, the organ and women's organization I work with in movement support and feminist popular education, there's an essay of hers from 1979 that we use constantly. I'm referring, of course, to the master's tools will never dismantle the master house. People should find that essay. Of course, we don't have time to, to quote from it here. But basically, she says, they may allow us to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. So between that and the beauty and power of her poetry, which we need in all our movements, as a part of the culture that sustains us, I honor Audre Lorde today and the power of the pen united with this visionary thought and clarity that resonates as much today as it did more than four decades ago. Right. And thank you for lifting up Audrey Lord. She and I worked uh, together. Um, she was part of a women's organization I founded, the early Black Women for Wages for Housework. Um, what we're going to do now is uh, to wrap the show up. Uh, Jackie had to dash. No, no, uh, no I'm, back. I'm back. Oh, you're I'm here. here. Okay, I'm great, great. great. Now, Jackie. Mayard Rustin is as my last name. Okay. He combined labor, he combined gay rights, he combined civil rights. And he was a leader that was very responsible for the March on Washington and for a lot of the early days of the sit-ins uh, at lunch counters uh, dealing with uh, trying to desegregate Jim Crow laws. So thank you for letting me add that last little note about Bayard. Right. That's that's very good, uh, Jackie. And maybe I wanted to hear a, a, a little bit from Coretta Scott King on Langston Hughes. Can we hear a bit of that now? Absolutely. This challenge is simply but profoundly stated in the words of one of the greatest black poets, the late Langston Hughes. He called the poem Mother to Son, but it speaks to the sons and the daughters of this generation and those yet unborn. It speaks of the determination and the indestructible spirit of a black people who refuse to be conquered. This spirit must somehow be infused in the hearts and souls of women and their sons everywhere. 
Listen to this black mother as she counsels her son in all of her ungrammatical profundity. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splitters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor. Bare. But all the time I've been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you sit down on the steps cause you finds it's kinda hard don't you stop now. Fire's still going, honey. I'm still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. With this determination, with this faith, we will be able to create new homes, new communities, new cities, a new nation, yea, a new world, which we desperately need. All righty, and Coretta Scott King on Langston Hughes as we wrap up our show today. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas and Gary Baca, our engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Thank you for listening. 